in prayer. We are in Acts chapter 4 this morning. And if you would, would you turn there or listen attentively as I uh, read to us? Because this is the word of the living uh, God, it's our custom to stand. Let's stand and hear and receive the word of God. Father, as we uh, stand in your presence and acknowledge that these are not simply the words of Dr. Luke, but you moved him by your spirit to write these things to us, we ask that we ourselves might receive what you'd have for us today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected By you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, They had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because the people for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, 
who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon the... their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You may be seated. In August of 2001, armed guards seized the offices of the International Assistance Mission and ordered the workers to leave Afghanistan. It had been only a few weeks uh, before the two Americans uh, who uh, reportedly had sought to convert uh, Muslims to Christianity were expelled. It wasn't much better, hasn't been much better in Pakistan and even uh, since the formation of the Islamic Republic uh, in 1956, the right to hold your own religion, to share your own religion, to practice it publicly is written in the Constitution. But in fact, for many who convert from Islam to Christianity, death is their uh, fate. Anti-Christian persecution is widespread. The Pew Forum says in the five years beginning in 2006, 139 nations have some form of discrimination experienced by Christians. And the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, which is at Gordon Seminary, estimates that 100,000 Christians have been killed each year in the last decade. Decade. That's 11 Christians being killed somewhere every hour, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Now, many, many people, and perhaps you, would agree with the words of Rabbi Bocic, who said, I'm absolutely against any religion that says one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that's anything different than spiritual racism. It's a way of saying we are closer to God than you, and that's what leads to hate. After all, many people feel, how could anybody be so arrogant as to claim that their faith is the only way to God? When Peter and John are arrested, that's exactly what Peter says And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter's declaring unambiguously that Jesus is unique. It is exclusively through him that we can be saved. Now, our text this morning is part two of the events around the instantaneous healing 
of this man who was crippled from birth. His uh, public healing in the temple courts brought a crowd to investigate. Peter declares that it was through the name of Jesus this man is able to walk. And this miracle is a flashpoint in the growing conflict uh, between the Jewish authorities and the church. It's a conflict that began during Jesus' earthly ministry and resulted in his being crucified. And now it continues as Jesus carries out his ministry from heaven through his followers. I want to look at this conflict with you uh, this morning through three angles. Uh, The story, the sermon, uh, and the sequel. Now, the events in chapters 3 and 4 take place over 24 hours. It begins as Peter and John are entering the temple, and there's a beggar calling out for alms. They have brought nothing uh, with them. And instead of giving him what they don't have, they give him his greatest need. They bring healing to him. The man, as he's pulled to his feet, is filled with joy. He begins walking and jumping. This man who had sat begging at this spot for years. And the passers-by are astonished. And word just ripples uh, through the crowd and people come uh, running. And Peter addresses the crowd. He makes it clear that it's in the name of Jesus by the name of Jesus, this man is healed. That this was, in fact, foreseen by the prophet Isaiah. And he preaches a sermon, uh, summoning the crowd to own their part in putting Jesus to death, which had happened just about two months uh, before this event. The temple police uh, see what's going on. They come out and arrest Peter and John, throw them into prison, thinking that that might sober them. The next day, the ruling council meets. A formal investigation is undertaken. It was an intimidating group. 71 men who had the power of the U.S. Congress and the Supreme Court. In other words, they exercised religious and civil authority. And this was the very group of people that had put Jesus to death. Peter and John hardly expected a fair hearing. After all, these people had no uh, trouble exercising their power regardless of the demands of justice. The counsel to a man was astonished by the boldness of Peter and John, and all the more so because they were not graduates in an accredited seminary. They hadn't been apprenticed theologically. And they were in a difficult spot because the man who'd been healed was standing right before them. And there was just the stubborn fact that this well-known beggar was now whole. And so they had no good option, so they moved uh, into a closed-door session pushing uh, these three out the door. Luke summarizes uh, what they say. What then shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that they may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his uh, name. 
They've commanded them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, and Peter and John respond fearlessly. Well, it's up to you to judge who we should obey. Um, They were not going to deny what they had seen and heard in the presence of Jesus and his uh, resurrection. Uh, They weren't going to obey the counsel and disobey the commission they had uh, received to bear witness to Christ. Peter and John experienced two things that Jesus told them they would experience. They would be given special ability to stand before authorities and uh, proclaim the gospel. And that they should expect opposition and persecution. Uh, Jesus said it to them in the upper room. And undoubtedly, the Holy Spirit brought this to their uh, minds, if not then, certainly afterward. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me. They will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. For many Christians living outside the West, opposition to their faith is an everyday occurrence. They risk losing their jobs, being disowned by their families, beatings, imprisonment, and even death. Now, American Christians talk a lot about persecution in our own country. And we really need to have some perspective when we talk about that. The war on Christianity largely is verbal. Sometimes it's legal. But it's really just a completely different order of magnitude than what Christians who don't live in the West experience. We shouldn't expect that the world is going to respect us. Jesus told us that. I remember vividly when it really dawned on me that being a pastor meant that people weren't going to respect me. We were living about 20 miles south of Fort Mill, South Carolina, where the television evangelist uh, Jim Baker uh, had his, uh, his, well, his heritage center. And when the scandal broke out about the, well, the deception, the financial lies, the way that they uh, lived their uh, lives, it was as if somebody had dropped a nuclear bomb over the area where we lived. I just could sense hostility in people. People looked at me and thought, you're just, you know, you're like those television evangelists. You're a fraud. What you really just want is our uh, money. And uh, I just could sense just this loss of respect uh, that I felt anyway. We should expect opposition. But we shouldn't be intimidated by it. We should pray for those who oppose us, who treat us as if we're enemies. And we should expect when we experience tension and even opposition, if we're doing the right thing, 
in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, that our witness to him will have great effect. Now in the sermon, the, Peter's very emphatic and strikes many people as arrogant when he says, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, the claim that Peter's making about Jesus seems to many people like the married man who boasted, I have married the most beautiful woman in the world. Now, we might applaud his affection, and behind that we might, uh, well, we might recognize this romantic exaggeration as that. After all, this is the stuff of good marriages. And a husband should have eyes only uh, for his wife. But we wouldn't think of this as reliable information about all women. But imagine now that the man's wife comes to you stating without the least hint of exaggeration, I am the most beautiful woman in the world. Well, you'd likely have a different uh, reaction thinking, She's either arrogant or terribly confused. Just who does she think she is to expect me to believe that about her? If she were to summon you into a debate, you might not know where to begin, but you would be sure that she was wrong. The apostles claim that Jesus is more than a great spiritual guide, more than a way to God, but rather that he's unique that he's the only way to know God and experience salvation, the salvation that's seen in a physical way in the cripple's healing. Well, is this just sincere Christians exaggerating their love for their leader? If so, maybe they're like that married man, expressing an innocent but entirely not entirely informed or shared opinion. Christians know that there are other spiritual options, but they refuse to give up this claim that Jesus is unique, that God himself has come in human uh, flesh, that he has become one of us uh, to restore to us the relationship uh, that we were intended always to know. Without such relationship with the creator, it's not possible uh, for us uh, to have the meaning and purpose of life that we should have. Like the apostles, Christians are insistent on this point because this is what Jesus claimed for himself. Jesus alone was put to death in our place and raised from the dead. No other leader of a major religion ever did that. Not Moses, Muhammad, Buddha, or Lao Tzu. Now you may be thinking, well, uh, I just don't buy that. Um, After all, all religions pretty much say the same thing. Something basically like this, treat people the way you'd like to be treated. 
And each of them sees some part of spiritual truth, but none of them sees the whole truth. Sometimes to make this point, the story, the blind man and the elephant is told. Several blind men are out for a walk and they happen upon an elephant who lets them touch him. And the first man touches the trunk and says, well, an elephant is flexible like a snake. The second man with his hands uh, around one of the legs says, no, that's not right. It's like a tree, massive and round. The third, uh, feeling the side, says, no, it's large and flat. Each one's touching only a part of the elephant, but none could see the whole. And so the point is this, that each of the world's religions have part of the truth, but none of them see the full reality. They don't have a comprehensive view of God. All the religious violence, whether it's Muslim on Christian today, or in the past, the wars that Christians uh, Uh, brought on Muslims or Buddhists on Muslims. All this religious conflict is because the ignorant and arrogant followers of one religion uh, claim that they exclusively have the whole truth about God. But this illustration of the blind man and the elephants missing something. You see, the story's told from the point of view of someone who can see the whole elephant. And it raises the question, How could you know that each blind man is only seeing a part unless you can claim to see the whole? Alvin Plantinga, a philosopher, points out, while this story about the blind man appears to display humility about spiritual reality and therefore invalidate all claims uh, to know the truth, in itself, it is an arrogant claim to have superior knowledge. The question becomes this, how could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you have some kind of superior comprehensive uh, knowledge of the truth, which you say no one can have? It's not arrogant to make the claim that Jesus makes for himself that he's unique. The honest thing uh, to do intellectually is not to say that's impossible. There's no way. It's to investigate what Jesus himself said and did. One of the very best ways to do this is to read a gospel uh, with someone who can uh, help you and answer your questions as you read it, perhaps for the first time. Or many people have found reading mere Christianity has helped them to understand what Christianity is really about. But it's also true that many Christians have spoken in condescending and arrogant manner to people that don't agree that Jesus is the way. More than a few are combative when talking about Jesus. This is completely at odds with the gospel. To accept the gospel is to acknowledge that we uh, can't help ourselves, that Christ alone can't. To believe and receive on Christ is to humble yourself, to rid yourself of arrogance. Christ has brought forgiveness and new life and hope, and all the other gifts that come with him should make us grateful. Of all people, Christians should be grateful. You see, arrogance 
elevates self. It says, I'm someone. I have something that you don't have that makes me better than you. But gratitude is focused on another. We dare not act uh, much less talk like we're better than anyone else because we know we don't deserve salvation. We uh, dare to say that Jesus is the only way because we know that he alone has done the impossible. He has reached out and changed someone like me and like you. We are commanded to speak with both courage and respect. And unless we respect other people's views and listen carefully to them, uh, we won't overcome the stereotype of arrogance. Having been commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus, the Jewish rulers don't go beyond uh, threats because the people were rejoicing at the healing of this man uh, who was crippled from birth. Luke uh, adds that he was 40 years old to tell us this was a singularly impressive uh, miracle. But miracles can never compel people to faith. Uh, The council did not deny that this man had been healed. They were simply unmoved by it. They found nothing compelling about the claims of the apostles or about the claims of Jesus. Luke will tell us in chapter 5 that this conflict will escalate and the apostles will not only be arrested but beaten. And then it won't be long after that that the church has its first martyr. Peter and John go to their Christian friends after they recount their experience and they pray together. The sequel has several lessons for us. Note the perspective that they have about the opposition they experience. After expressing uh, in the strongest possible terms their conviction that God is sovereign, he's the creator of all, uh, they uh, pray back to God a portion of Psalm 2. They see in the opposition that they are experiencing another manifestation of the hostility of human leaders to the Lord's anointed, to King Jesus. And they make that connection very explicitly in verse 27 when they say, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. They profess that Jesus' death was a part of God's plan. And they ask that God would notice. They don't ask God to strike the rulers dead. They don't ask for protection. No, they clearly expect uh, to be hated. They expect opposition. And they know, inciting this psalm, that behind this opposition is the hatred for God's rule uh, itself. They ask for, this is the only thing they ask for, boldness to keep speaking and for Jesus to do confirming signs. And at this point in the book of Acts, the apostles are doing all the speaking, all the preaching. But as the church 
prays through them, something happens to the church. In time, the church itself, all the ordinary rank-and-file members of the church, uh, they will begin to speak about Jesus. They will become part of the force uh, by which uh, Christianity is spread and multiplies. By the year 200, there are hundreds of thousands of Christians. And by A.D. 350, there are 33 million Christians in the Roman Empire. This happened because there were mass conversions, as uh, we've seen in chapters 2 and 4, where thousands respond to the preaching of the gospel. It happens as households experience conversions, and as individuals respond and they share what we would call their web of relationships to their family and friends, the joy that they found in Jesus Christ. Luke wants us also to see something else. In verse 3, he tells us that Peter and John were arrested. And then verse 4, he gives us a report that 2,000 came to Christ that day. He's saying this, you can imprison the apostles, but not the gospel. You can imprison the messengers, but the gospel moves forward. In praying Psalm 2, the the church is recognizing that behind the opposition of the rulers to Christ and the refusal to live under God's rules, behind all of this is the story of the Bible, that there is a power, a spiritual being, the evil one, who is hostile uh, to God. It is he who's ultimately behind this opposition. And this is the first of three different kinds of spiritual attacks that Luke tells us about in this part of the book of Acts. (coughs) It's one of three strategies that the evil one employs to stop the spread of the gospel, intimidation. Now, the evil one has never given up on his attempt to destroy the church. Under Nero, the emperor Nero, who reigned from AD 54 to 68, Christians were imprisoned. So likely it was under his rule that Peter and John were put to death. The next uh, uh, ruler uh, after him, Domination, Uh, uh, oppressed Christians by insisting uh, that they engage in emperor uh, worship. And then there would be ten waves of persecution. Much of it was very informal, and simply the emperor turned a blind eye when people attacked uh, Christians. Uh, But the last emperor before Constantine, uh, Diocletian, uh, he issued four edicts in order to destroy a Christianity. Churches were to be burned, the scriptures conservated, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the scriptures uh, confiscated clergy to be tortured, and if uh, those Christians that were in public service in the empire, if they were unrepentant, uh, were to be put to death. <clears throat> but the church needn't fear for its survival, Tertullian, one of the great apologists of the early church addressing the Roman rulers of the empire, said this, The more you mow us down, the more we grow. 
Uh, you kill us, torture us, condemn us, and grind us to dust. Oh, I'm good. I've got water. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I need to use it, don't I? <laughs> yes. The seed is our blood. And uh, this has been uh, true in every century. In the 20th century, as Ugandan Christians uh, suffered under the persecution of Idi Amin, uh, one of the leaders, uh, uh, Bishop Festo, uh, Kevin Guerra, said, without bleeding, the church fails to bless. Persecution will refine the church, but not destroy it. If it leads to prayer and praise and acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God and solidarity with Christ in his sufferings, then however painful, we welcome it. And Luke ends by telling us that three remarkable things happened as the prayer ended. The place where they were was shaken. Not only expression of God's pleasure with their prayers, but a manifestation of his power. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they courageously spoke the word of God. We live in a time when we see around us an increasingly uh, post-modern mindset, uh, secularism and a paganism uh, that really just infuse uh, life around us in America. And it's easy in this environment to think, well, our witness, well, it can't make any difference. The ground's just too hard. There'll be no one who will uh, receive it. But that's simply not the case. If we're going to follow both the example and commands we have encountered here in the book of Acts and boldly and effectively witness to Jesus, then like Peter, who was full of the Spirit when he spoke to the council and is filled once again with the Spirit, we need to do as Tom did today with us. We need to ask for fresh infillings of the Spirit. And we too need encouragement We should not expect God to shake the room uh, when we pray, but we need encouragement. And we need to be creative about the ways that we encourage each other in our efforts to bear witness to Christ. We should share with each other uh, stories about those little bits and pieces we have in conversations with people uh, when we get to have a spiritual conversation with them. We should certainly ask one another to pray uh, for those that we're in deep friendships with for the opportunity to have conversations that go deeper about what's really important in life. And we need to have places where we share with each other the story of how God came into our own lives and changed us, as well as to how God is active in our lives today, so that we don't think of God as remote and absent and uninvolved. There is only one name given by which we can be saved. It's Jesus. It's the message that's been entrusted to us. May we carry it well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what we see here uh, in the book of Acts and for the encouragement that we who believe have.
And Lord, we ask that our attitudes, our demeanor, our words would reflect the humility and gratitude that befits us as those you've redeemed. And help us to be wise, equip us to be able to share our faith well. And Lord, any who are here who are wrestling with the unique claims of Christ, may they be granted the humility and honesty to search out his claims. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.